Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alexandreo. Unbearable pressure. Never seen things so stretched. More people on corridor beds than have seen before. New ways of trying to invent spaces that don't exist, like car triage, reverse boarding, beds in outpatient wings, and physio gyms, GPs driving patients to A&E, ambulances running out of portable oxygen, testicular exams given in cupboards, as well as the personal stories of people crying after every shift. This is what the Doctors' Association is hearing from its members. My guest today is a friend of the podcast and our go-to on the health service. He's a former vice chair of West Surrey and North East Hampshire Health Authority, a renowned health writer whose NHS Managers Network newsletter is one of the most influential voices in the whole NHS. He's written for The Guardian, The Telegraph and The Times, among others. Welcome to the bunker, Roy Lilly. Alex, thank you very much and thank you for inviting me. It's good to be back and Happy New Year to everybody. Um, Roy... Nick Hume, um, who's the chief executive of East Suffolk and North Essex NHS Trust, described the situation as the most challenging winter he has seen in his career. He says that even the worst case contingency planning didn't prepare them for it. What are you hearing from the sector? Well, exactly the same as that. I mean, he, he he's a very good chief executive, but he's only a young thing. I mean, I've been involved in the NHS since my mid-20s, and now I'm in my mid-70s. And I can tell you, in 50 years, I've seen nothing like this. And, you know, we've been through all kinds of problems, flu, pandemics, and everything else. This is worse than the pandemic, I think. Um, the uncertainty of it all is very difficult. The planning for it is very difficult. And we just don't have enough capacity to deal with the demand. And that's the really worrying thing. And that's why in your introduction, you said quite rightly that, you know, we're stuffing people into cupboards and, and in corridors now. So it, it unquestionably, it is the most difficult time I've ever experienced in the NHS. Um, Roy, would you say it is primarily because the demand is much higher than expected, the capacity is lower than expected, or is it a combination of both things? Well, it's a fine balance uh, to to answer that. I mean, certainly the coincidence of a, of a resurgence in COVID, because there are now six or 7,000 people in hospital on with COVID, and that creates its own problems with infection control, separation, uh, ventilation. It, it, it's a complicated thing to deal with. And when people come to hospital, they're usually that bit older or they've got other things wrong with them. We call them comorbidities. So mm. they really do need ITU care. And because we've got flu, and this has been a very vicious flu season, and it's come with a, a lot of cold weather as well and again upper respiratory tract illness which often requires ventilation and certainly four or five days in hospital and and so the hospital is a chock a block now that leads on to the other part of your question which is a very insightful it certainly is capacity there's no question about it if you look at the oecd data of hospital comparisons, we're in the bottom quartile for almost everything. Um, Doctors per head of uh, 1,000 population, nurses per head of population, beds per head of population, scanners and diagnostics per head of population. It just goes on and on and on. So we don't have the capacity. And then the next question is, I guess what you're going to say is, well, why don't we have the capacity? And that's because after the World Banking crisis, we have to go back to 2009-10, 
the whole of the public sector took a hit. Uh, George Osborne was the chancellor then in the coalition government, and he embarked upon a real austerity program for the public sector. Most of the public sector had their budgets cut. Local authorities had their budgets cut. Uh, They had two cuts of 20%. The NHS did a bit better. The NHS had almost flatline funding, but there were increases of about 1.2%, uh, 1.8%. Normally, the NHS, if you look at the historical funding of the NHS, go back to 1945 when it first started to the present day, you see a track of about 4%. If the NHS has 4% per annum, it can sort of manage to run up the the down escalator. But flatline funding for that 10 years meant we didn't recruit enough people, didn't build enough hospitals, repair enough hospitals. I mean, at the moment, we, we've got a rebuilding and renewal program worth £9 billion just to prop up the hospitals we've got. So we went into COVID, and we forget this, we went into COVID with waiting lists at about 4.5 million, which at the time was a huge record. I mean, I, I was saying, God, you know, I've been in the NHS a long time and I've never seen anything like it. Little did I realise. Um, and of course, we had vacancies of about 40,000 nurses. Now, what have we got? Seven and a half million people waiting uh, and 120,000 vacancies across the whole of the NHS. So that's why we're in this mess. And if you add that to social care vacancies, which are at similar levels, you get basically near enough a quarter of a million vacancies across both things. Basically, vacancies are running at about 10%, just under. I mean, is this a time to antagonize workers and say you're not getting any more money when we're already struggling to to recruit people? I, I mean, just from a business perspective, it seems weird. Yeah, it's cack-handed, isn't it? Uh, okay, let me sort of put both sides of the story. I can kind of see why this is. In about 1960, the government decided it was going to stop trying to negotiate across the public sector for pay rises because it was just consuming all of ministers' time. So the first pay review body was invented in 1960 for for the doctors. And since then, now about about 26% of the public sector, that's 6 million people, are covered by pay review bodies. And, And it makes sense, I think, to have this independent pay review body. So where you get the outcome of a pay review body challenged, I can sort of understand the fact that ministers do not want to unpack the pay review body uh, recommendations, because if they do it for nurses, they'll have to do it for everybody else. And they won't want to do that. So, I mean, there there are solutions that I can suggest, and perhaps we'll come on to that in a moment. But that's why ministers are where they are. And social care, I mean, the big issue in social care is domiciliary care. That's where carers come in and help you get up. They're called mm. twilight services, things like that. A lot of listeners will be very familiar with that, with their older uh, relatives or perhaps even for themselves. And it's a very valuable thing to do. It, it's it's a very important thing to do. But the problem is the value of the contracts that the local authorities can buy from the, the providers of domiciliary services, and it's all contracted out into a very fragmented, fragile infrastructure, really, that's begging for cons- for consolidation. But they're paying £9.30 an hour uh, for, for the care. And I don't know if you saw it in the press, but last week Sainsbury's announced that they were going to pay £11 an hour. Yeah. Uh, for So, you know, where are you going to work? Are you going to 
trog round looking after elderly people in difficult circumstances or you're going to get a job in Sainsbury's and get 20% off, off your groceries. I mean, it's a no-brainer. So that's why that's in that mess. If we come back to these pay review body issue, I don't think ministers are going to unpack the pay review bodies. And already uh, trade unions who are in dispute over pay in the NHS, let's say Unison, Unite and the RCN and others, they've already said they have no confidence in the pay review body structure and they won't engage with it next time round. So, you know, we're on the road to nowhere, really. Mm. Roy, as a layperson, I looked at the last pay review report and, and it contains a very clear indication that government told them it's not going to fund any more than 3%. So, if government sets the overall envelope, is the pay review body truly independent? In, well, in well let, let's have a look at actually what happened. The pay review body, um, the, the, the government said, it, the government made its, its submission mm. and the submission was, we want to pay 3%. The, the unions then make their submission and they say, we want X percent. And the pay review bodies have to kind of, mediate in between they look at the general economy there are about nine things that the pay review bodies uh, have to look at the general economy inflation uh, recruitment retention there's a list of nine things that they're required Mm -hmm. to look at now if you if you think about the um, uh, what happened with the pay review body government wanted to pay three percent but actually this time around the pay review body said no no we think it should be 4.75 percent now, in the end, the government said, OK, well, we'll pay the 4.75%. What they didn't do, and this is the crafty bit, the government said, well, we will, said to the NHS, we will fund our 3%, which is what we wanted to pay, uh, but we agree to 4.5%, but you, the NHS, have got to find the other 1.75%. Yeah, yeah. That was £2 billion that had to come out of the operating budget. So it's a mess, uh, and that's why I think that the unions uh, have don't have much confidence in the pay review bodies. The other aspect of it that I'm struggling with a little bit is that the recommendation was made before inflation rose to the levels it is now. And the government in the past, in the last 10 years, have been perfectly at ease with ignoring the the pay review body's recommendations when it comes to actually going lower. So there's been at least three occasions when the pay review um, body said X percent and the government said, we're not going to give that, we'll give you 1%. Um, so it, it does the argument that, oh, we don't mess with what they recommend really hold no, no, it doesn't. I mean, they do mess with it. And um, um, there was a year, two, three years ago, where they, they said, we're not going to pay anything. And they just walked away from the pay review body process. Uh, look, there are a couple of things here, I think. that First of all, the pay review bodies seem to take an inordinate amount of time to reach a conclusion. That's what's got them in the mess this time mm, around, mm. because they made their conclusions in February. Since then, of course, world events that we're all very well aware of, the increase in commodity prices, the war in Ukraine, the uh, fuel prices and so on have all accelerated inflation and eroded the value of people's wages. So the pay review body didn't take that into account. And furthermore, their April when, when they're, they're next due to report in April, they actually don't actually publish their report until September. So it does take mm. too long. So I think as much as I, I you know I sound supportive of the pay review 
process, and I am, because I don't want to see ministers getting involved in this like you know, Harold Wilson did with beer and sandwiches at number 10. That's not the way to do this. But I do think the pay review body process, as I say, which has been around since 1960, could be cleaned up um, and it could to be made to be much more responsive. Roy, government has also been using comparisons, international comparisons, to suggest this is normal. The, the number 10 spokesperson between Christmas and New Year actually used the word normal. They say this is happening everywhere in the world. Is that true? Are, are we punishing the government for something they cannot control effectively? Uh, well, it's it's certainly true that, that all um, health systems across Europe are suffering the same kind of demand uh, that we're suffering because, you know, COVID recognises no boundaries, neither does the flu. So, yes, it, it is true that they are. But, of course, the, the issue is that in that 10 years that I just was describing a moment or two ago where we pretty much stopped investing in our, in our services um, – Germany uh, and France and Italy and Spain, they all took a much more Keynesian view of uh, of uh, public finances and they, they took public money and invested it in public services. So mm. if you look, as I say, I mentioned the OECD listing, it's on the web, uh, listeners can find it. If you look at the OECD listing of, of capacity and systems, we're right at the bottom. The other countries, they didn't invest huge amounts of money. They just invested the normal amounts of money to keep their services ticking over. And of course, they came out of it in a much better way than we did. So mm-hmm. if, if after COVID, for example, we had huge waiting lists after COVID because we suspended all of the elective procedures. Well, in Germany, they didn't do that. They segregated the system so that people didn't get COVID as well as a new hip, but they did separate it out so they could keep their elective procedures etc ticking over and they did the same in france so really we're paying the, the the penalty it's true demand is up everywhere but we're not coping with it because we haven't invested mm. what about comparisons with scotland and wales in on wednesday's prime minister's questions sunak reached for those several times are those more 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 helpful to the government they they say look it's just as bad in wales which is labor and and in scotland which is snp run yes i mean i think the temptation is for the prime minister and others in in westminster to try and and, and reflect a, a a difference in performance i mean if you look uh, if you look at wales well i mean let's give a bit of background here the the funding that that scotland and and wales get is is on what's called the Barnet formula. The Barnet formula, Joel Barnet, he was the chancellor during uh, Harold Wilson's years, and he came up with a way of calculating the funding for uh, the these now uh, really standalone parliaments, aren't they? Um, uh, which compared the the spending per head of population on all government expenditure to try and equalise it. So people in Wales had the same amount of money spent on them as they did in London and and then the same in Edinburgh and Scotland. Actually, they're called the, the Barnet Incidentals. The, the fact is that people in Wales do get a bit more than we get here, and so does Scotland, um, the way the calculations are. And they get mm-hmm. that because there are issues about the age of population, wealth, status, that 
kind of thing and uh, health inequalities that there are so you get you get to a situation where they get slightly more money but uh, i mean i they've got the same problems you can find differences at the margins but to be honest it, it's not worth bothering with yes they have less strikes though. Uh, sorry less strikes yes yeah. Um, of course, the arrangements in Scotland and Wales are different. There's a Labour government in, in Wales, and in Scotland they have the SNP and, and, and other parties. It's not a Conservative government. And, of course, it's important to remember th- that in Scotland the nurses had a one-off payment after COVID. And I think the Labour relations are different there where, and I mean, you're right to point this out, that ministers in Scotland and in Wales meet with uh, public sector uh, employees directly. They don't use the pay review bodies. Yeah, there, there just seems to be a different tone. And I wonder whether at the start of all this last fall, there was a, a disastrous political calculation that a big fight with all the unions might might revive Tory fortunes in in the sort of polls, and that has backfired spectacularly. And now the government find themselves in a situation where if they make a deal, everyone will say, well, why didn't you do that three months ago? Yeah. So we didn't have to go through this strife. And if they don't make a deal, they just perpetuate the situation. You do. And of course, we're seeing it now in Westminster, where they're bringing forward uh, regulations to limit the uh, the impact of strikes so that uh, certain professions won't be able to go on strike anymore, including the ambulances and part of the NHS because they're a vital public service. And it's always the same. Whenever there is a, a, a big bust up in industrial relations, the government always reach for legislation. In the Thatcher years, they did it after the miners' strike. They introduced very strong labour laws, which place a a responsibility on trade unions to ballot members and, and it's quite draconian and very difficult to um, to comply with so and we're going to see more of the legislation but it, look it doesn't work does it I mean the obvious thing to do is you can't legislate strikes out of uh, the workplace because even if you make them illegal people will still strike you can't you can't stop people withdrawing their labor what you can do is to stop them having reasons to withdraw their labour. And you're quite right. I mean, the way this was cacadded right from the start, uh, Barclay should have sat down with them. And by now, they probably would have given them all, I don't know, a, a couple of thousand quid ex gratia payment, um, which which is not repeated and wouldn't be a big impact on the Treasury. Mm-hmm. Um, they'd have brought the pay review body in from, it's going to be April probably to the end of February, and it, they'd have settled it. I mean, this was eminently settleable when it started. Now, of course, everybody Everybody's dug a great big hole for themselves. Hmm. Okay, so finally, what can they do going in the interest of everyone who is just, you know, feeling insecure about the situation? I saw a doctor um, the other day on Sky News saying, and, and although I dislike the term, I understand the sentiment, he said this doesn't feel like a developed country anymore in terms of the health service. So so what do we do going forwards? Uh, there are all these systemic things that will take time to fix, but other low-hanging fruit that could improve the situation in the next few weeks? In the next few weeks, no. I mean, I think these strikes are, gonna, are just going to drift on. What I would do is I would find the resources to sort out domiciliary care 
uh, in in local government. That's the one hmm. big thing we could do because the NHS is it's just like a big conveyor belt. Sick and poorly people go in at one end and hopefully fixed up and happy people come out the other. They're not coming out the other because we've got about 23% of people who are in hospital at the moment are elderly, frail and medically well enough to go home, but they're not medically fit enough to go home without support. If we could crack the domiciliary care sector, then that would make a huge, huge difference because once the flow is freed up in hospital care, actually lengths of stay are quite short. I mean, years ago, you go into hospital and have a new hip, it would be three weeks. Now, you're lucky if you're there for three days. So we could, we can push people through the system and we would see big changes very quickly. But at the moment, because we can't get people home, they're on the wards. Because we can't get flow through the wards, we've got people chock-a-block in A&E. And because A&E is full, we've got ambulances queuing up outside. And because ambulances are queuing up outside, when you ring 999, you can't get an ambulance. So, mm. that's the, so that is the one thing that I would concentrate on. It needs a proper pay structure. Maybe we could bring them into the agenda for change pay scales that the NHS uses. I mean, there is a very interesting experiment, not experiment, but a very interesting thing going on in Northumberland, Northumberland Foundation Trust, where they've got so fed up with trying to sort out domiciliary care through the local authority, they've actually started their own domiciliary care service. They're employing Hmm. people in the NHS and they're getting home and supporting them. They're actually doing it themselves. So those are the kind of solutions that I would introduce immediately. And as far as the strike is concerned, I I think it's strike light, really, because strikes have to cause damage. They have to cause damage to the economy of the business or inconvenience to an extreme point to the public. The strikers in the NHS dare not do that. So this is just going to drift on. And I think the government are going to be content to let it drift on until the pay review bodies meet in April. Roy Liddy, thank you for your time and for your clarity. It's a great pleasure. Thank you very much for asking me to take part. Thank you. The health of the people is really the foundation upon which all the happiness and all the power of a state depends, Benjamin Disraeli said. It is perhaps then not a coincidence that periods during which Britain has descended to the status of sick man of Europe in terms of the economy, go hand in hand with profound crises in the physical health of its citizens. Safety and security is really the most basic duty of any government to its citizens. Well, safety and security includes, in my view, knowing that if you get very sick, the help for which you have paid all your life might turn up. This is Alex Andreo in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker was presented by Alex Andreev. Audio productions from me, Robin Lieber. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. The Bunker is a Hobmasters production.